Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Sorry for not making episodes for so long, just that um, I was a bit busy, you know, getting engaged, planning on getting married soon. Those of you who are on my Discord channel already know, but uh, for the rest of you, yeah, I intend to get back into proper settling down in marriage. That took some time, and uh, yeah, David is already a bit angry because I spent all this night working instead of properly sleeping, and she's not happy and says I should take care of my health more, which I should, but you also deserve some episodes because, well, on the previous one that we recorded, that's going to be out in uh, Saturday or Sunday because Anita, our editor, she's in New York City right now, so she can't really edit our interview, more more discussion, more bit of a torture of myself with Alex from History Impossible where we talk about the delusion, delusions of the pro-war Russian side. This was fun. We, it happened on Discord and many more, more conversations will happen there and you'll be able to ask questions and everything. But today, well, I think I'm going to release two episodes because one of them is going to be very specialized. And, you know, one's, one of them is going to hang out now, another one's going to be up there later because we have all the other news. And then obviously we have, well, the recent, very complex, very interesting operation that was executed efficiently and effectively by Ukraine, de- de- delivering a blow to shipbuilding plant in Alex Sevastopol. You know, the place where military ships are being repaired and by, by the Russians and all this stuff just went crazy. And a lot of counterattacks happened, a lot of rumors around this, a lot of interesting things. The interesting part is that what surprised the Russian side about this attack was that the attack occurred on one of the most heavily fortified places in all of Sevastopol, which is in Crimea. This is a very strategic military object, and it's, of course, the main shipbuilding facility of the Black Sea Fleet, at least in this area and on this territory of Ukraine. The Ukrainians managed to hit the Minsk landing ship and a submarine, which is the first Russian Federation submarine to be hit during this war. And, well, these were combined attacks, including Storm Shadow missiles or Miskalp missiles. They're basically the same thing and modified S-200 missiles and surface drones who all joined the attack. And, well, as I've noticed before, previously we only saw pinpoint individual strikes, but lately it's been moving onwards. And now I can see how all this ties into, ties together. See all these little drones, one drone there, two drones somewhere else, attacks on, on Moscow itself and everywhere. Yeah. Well, it seems like these were more like a test than attempt to identify Russian air defense systems in order to later, right now, inflict significant damage to Russian military targets through a combined attack such as this one. A lot of people, especially on the Russian side, were surprised by this, still are, as, well, Russian propaganda and Z channels and everyone just points out how all this is just PR and everything. Apparently, apparently not. Apparently Ukraine has managed to pull off a really larger, more complex operation of aimed at depriving Russia of most of its combat potential, especially in the Black Sea. See, the damaged submarine seems to be out of commission for a long time, reducing Russia's potential for missile strikes. And, you know, we have to talk about how this attack was possible, and also why the Z-Patriots are not happy and not reacting, as you would expect. And, of course, what to expect in the future, because this is an important moment in the history of all this war. Because Ukraine is currently increasing its potential to strike military logistics, military infrastructure, and Russian military targets every month through these aerial drone attacks and maritime drone attacks and missile strikes and everything. And this whole 
thing needs to be addressed. For once, we have a combat situation going on here and not some precautions nonsense. So what exactly happened? You all, at this point, have seen photos and videos of burning ships in Sevastopol. Ukraine struck a shipbuilding plant and uh, over there injured over 20 people. Two of them died. I think that, you know, the numbers are iffy, as always, because it's a secret military facility. Well, not secret, but closed, really. And, uh, well, some of them seem to be employees of the plant. Others were crews, quite possibly sailors. It's obviously impossible to determine who exactly was there and in what capacity, and we'll never find out, because some people from the, the Moscow ship, well, they're still missing in action. So, this, um, this was a military facility. There were no civilians, so at least we know that one. But yeah, a landing ship and a submarine, both who were linked to the attack on Vinitsa. They were damaged in the night of September 13th, for those of you who are listening to this later. And um, it's important to note that this was not just a random missile strike. This was a combined strike. And this is significant because Ukraine this time managed to overload the Russian air defense system. Now, this tactic is not new, and their opponents, Russia, and our opponents as well, you know, they, uh, they use this often. And Russia regularly uses it when drones, particularly those that have become more noticeable, are involved. See, earlier in this war, when Russia started targeting civilian infrastructure, especially energy infrastructure in Ukraine in the last winter, drones became a big problem for Ukraine. It was difficult to completely eliminate them by using the existing air defense systems because they are small targets and it would be costly to use expensive ammunition against them. However, in this case, when infrastructure is targeted and everything, they can cause huge damage and cost of ammunition, although prohibitive, sometimes is judged worthy. Now, in the current situation, after a few months, when Ukraine had, by now, more simple, effective, and importantly, inexpensive ways to shoot down drones, Russians started using them to overload the Ukrainian air defense system. They would launch more missiles through the Ukrainian air defense, allowing more missiles to pass through. The main difference between Sevastopol and Ukrainian cities is that, um, well, Russia constantly uses these things to attack Ukrainian cities as, well, and the shelling has become so frequent over there that it often doesn't even get mentioned in the mainstream news. I mean, we even noticed that when we were there. The strikes against civil infrastructure are often carried out for the show. In the past, some people had the impression that Ukrainian, the Russian missiles could deviate from their course and hit Ukrainian air defense systems, but uh, yeah, those theories, they um, no longer exist. Because, you see, Russia deliberately targets civilian objects, likely presenting them as military targets to the leadership. This was seen in Konashenko's briefings. I mean, who even listens to the guy anymore? When he claimed that the Russian multi-study building was hit, but uh, it was actually civilian objects and civilian infrastructure that were hit. Putin himself admitted that Russia was targeting Ukraine's power infrastructure, which is an attack on civilian objects and a war crime by default, but uh, yeah, they do that. Unfortunately, obviously in these cases, casualties are unavoidable due to the large number of missiles and drones launched. Where they are destroyed, there are fragments that hit civilian objects, and unfortunately there are situations when, anyway, one or two missiles fly through the air defense system and reach their targets, which are, in Russia's case, often civilian objects, including apartment buildings. But, uh, however, you have to notice, a bit of a tangent on the Russian side here, Ukraine has learned to cope with this much better than the Russian countryside, because on the Russian side, such strikes have not been carried out, or practically not been carried out, because in order to do so, you need missiles, and you need missiles that will operate at long distances and hit with precision. And these missiles Ukraine got only relatively recently. 
we're talking about, obviously, storm shadows and, and scalps and everything. So this allows Ukraine to strike Russian rears more effectively. As we have seen in, in the strikes of Russian occupied territory in Crimea with these storm shadow missiles and including strikes on warehouses with Russian ammunition. So, well, despite how much Russia yells at it, Crimea is still occupied territory, Ukrainian territory. So, well, the Western agreements with Ukraine that Western weapons cannot be used out to carry strikes on the territory of Russia do not apply to Crimea. We worried about that earlier, but this is important. And, well, should be said separately that apparently Sergei Shogu and Minister of Defense, you know, he had stated previously that any strikes on Crimea with Storm Shadow or the Sculps, that all of this will be a new escalation for war and Russia will respond to it. However, however, you know, all sorts of strikes have been carried out for quite a long time and uh, obviously no new response from the Russian side. This, by the way, is important because um, apparently, as we found out, this was this strike which happened, as internet tells me, on Western sources tell me, apparently this strike was something that Elon Musk was so afraid of that he actually cut off this internet or did not provide it or something of that sort. Since apparently when he found out uh, previously in like autumn or something that Ukraine was planning something like this, he apparently called the, the ambassador, the Russian ambassador to the United States and um, had a talk with him and he managed to somehow believe that yes, there will be nuclear strikes for this. And now exactly what he had been afraid of has happened and uh, we're not going to see anything like that, like a nuclear strike or, or any just other retaliation of these moreover endless red lines. And yeah, you know, not because uh, Russia doesn't want to, but at this point because Russia can't. Russia doesn't have the physical capability to use more weapons. Yeah, you know... After successful attacks, Russia is making record salvos with its missiles and drones and everything, and it's it's happened now as well, but about that in the evening episode, because there were strikes on Odessa last night and everything. But um, Russia is just blasting back in some sort of random assault drone attack or missile attack, no matter what happens. And Russia is just using it constantly all the time, despite the fact that, you know, Western media says Russia has increased production of missiles and everything, yeah, they use them way more. And they have lack of shells and everything. Russia, at this point, is literally using everything it has in this war, except, well, nuclear weapons. See, this is crazy, because Russia, well, doesn't want to escalate with NATO as well, especially after all the threats. And Russia might say that they're in war with all of NATO and everything, but as we can see, you know... They are still afraid of all this situation. They um, they threatened all this stuff because, you know, of, of the grain deal and everything, but they still haven't actually hit anything of, of these Western ships and everything. And Putin is trying very accurately to kind of, you know, go, uh, go on the edge of the blade and figure out everything that's happening there. And, you know, it seems that no one really wants to wants to really escalate this. So any fears of Elon Musk have been unsubstantiated. And uh, Mr. Shoigu, who apparently in an interview he just gave, didn't even know if his side will win. Yeah, that's also nothing to really worry about here. So to get back on track, what exactly happened was that there were S-200 missiles used without any real reason to hit anything by Ukrainian side. And then these were shot down by the Russian air defenses. 
and then the drone, but they were kind of pinpointed out where these air defenses were. And then, well, drones were used to hit, try to hit these air defenses. Some of them were hit. And then storm shadows came in. And uh, out of these, apparently, a lot of people in Russian side say that many were destroyed. Yeah, many probably were destroyed, but uh, they still hit the, the submarine and the ship and everything. And it just caused a lot of damage. Combined arms attack. And I actually don't even know since, you know, how often have you actually hit submarine with an air-to-surface missile at this point? And this happened, well, because Russia is just not accustomed to these attacks, and even more so to these combined attacks, because Russia has air defense systems, but they're not set up for intensive shelling. Not here, at least. So Ukraine Ukraine just took advantage of this, uh, this whole situation and just acted upon this. And Russia itself, obviously reports various numbers of the situation and damaged everything. However, well, what exactly is damage to a ship and a submarine in this case? And again, I used a lot of weird sources for this situation. I'm trying my best. I'm not a naval expert, but, um, you know, when we say damage here, okay, there's a lot of interpretation available for us. For example, you know, it's not like when a ship is destroyed completely like Kresa Moskva. You know, it's clear it's gone down and nothing new can happen to it. But when you talk about damage, there's a very big, there's a very big fluctuation possible of what actually happened there. That is from light damage that can be repaired literally in a week to severe damage that will not allow the watercraft to exist for months. For example, the recent damage to the landing crafts uh, is quite probably serious damage, the landing craft of Minsk, because there's a giant hole in the ship and uh, probably it will just take months if probably not years, to get this back on track. And, you know, there are a lot of variables here about this. Because, again, I have to give credit where credit is due. We have to bit of analyze this, because a lot of people are saying on the Russian side that this is like nothing. But, um, yeah, but Russia's shipbuilding capacity and repair capacity of these ships is limited, which is why, again, this is important. When choosing what to repair, they might they may prioritize ships with minor damage that just they have to do maintenance because they have wear and tear in certain parts of the ship. And because, well, it's quick because it gives you a functioning ship in the right moment because all of this, you know, is just a bit left for later. For one, the most obvious example is Admiral Kuznetsov, which was the Russian cruiser with aircraft capabilities and uh, that's still and uh, that's still out there after just falling into disrepair damaging itself and it's been under repair for several years and they haven't even tried to fix this out but they by the way that ship also had fires and was repaired again no well it's not that indicative because kuznetsov is a very difficult ship to repair but you know just because um there's a physical hole out there in the ship, which looks scary, doesn't seem that, you know, just because it would normally take six months to patch up, it doesn't mean at all that it will be patched up in six months and that uh, the ship will become a threat once again. So most likely that these uh, both both vehicles will not be able to do anything, possibly really anything in this war. Interestingly enough that uh, these ships were burning very brightly. And uh, why, is it, why is it important there were fires? See, the photos, by the way, another type of damage about the whole shipyard itself, showed that fire at the factory was quite intense and prolonged. And by the way, BBC war correspondent Pavel Oksyonov 
added that, uh, quote, it is important that um, fires at the shipyard are often aggravated by the, the ships or vessels are in the docks and repair without a crew that's ready to fight for its survivability. There are rules and guidelines for ship repair work, but to what extent are the shipyard workers on board really ready to fight for ship's survivability? And it's not known how strictly all these rules are observed, and there, there may also be various flammable materials on board, paint, solvents, and other things. Basically, when you have ship on combat duty or a submarine, there are measures, and a lot of these measures were not taken. And, um, yeah, when you have a crew and everything, well, on board, able to mitigate damage, they're ready to do minor repairs. But this was massive damage, massive fires and everything. It was even visible for satellites, apparently, so we can assume damage is actually very serious here. But um, this, in this attack, it's not actually that important that these two ships were damaged themselves. Well, it is, because those are two important vessels and they took part in some action. However, there's a bit more to this. Well, first of all, obviously, these missiles cost much less than the submarine and the ship. But again, as I mentioned earlier, Sometimes it's not about how much just things cost, but about how much damage it does to, to everything, and sometimes it's more about just the monetary costs. Say, you know, losing a submarine that can launch missiles of, you know, these caliber missiles, Russia has lost part of its capacity to launch these missiles in general. And the less Russia has such potential, the less, one, less strikes will be launched against Ukrainian territory. And, you know, this is, this is important because, again... Russia needs these caliber missiles and everything to overwhelm Ukrainian air defense. So you, know, so you now have one less piece of equipment that does that, and you have less capability no matter how many caliber missiles you have, no matter that even they may produce more than people expected. Because the question is just to overload the air defense systems in all of these cases. And um, yeah, this capability of overwhelming the air defense systems, that's been damaged in quite a lot. And... This is important because if you think about this once again, why, why this air system and why I'm spending so much time explaining this in detail and going probably over my head uh, from sources that I don't fully comprehend, but trying to do my best from them, is the fact that Sevastopol, according to Pavel Aksyonov and others, that these military facilities were one of the most protected areas in the whole, the whole Ukraine. And this was not an easy operation by, you know, including judging by the results and everything, this was just crazy and this was just a little difficult but they did it and this was very much a difficult defended area and this means that if you're looking at this area what could ukraine do in at least defended areas so it means that russia will once again have to take its air defense systems and reinforce sevastopol military facilities and you know if we're talking about the whole front line and not only the port itself but all the others because now they have to assume that the radius of application of these Storm Shadow missiles and, and Scalp missiles in the territory of Annex Crimea is, well, the maximum radius where they can be used. And obviously they're going to need more robust system of air defense systems that could repulse such combined attacks. And, uh, well, if Russia doesn't do that, if it doesn't move air defense systems towards Sevastopol in these areas, then these attacks will simply continue and simply deprive Russia of the Black Sea Fleet as, as basically as such, if they even, like, then they couldn't they can't do anything about it. And if they do move these air defense systems to protect the Black Sea fleet, this means Russia will have fewer air systems uh, in the front lines. 
And you might ask me, why, why the front lines? They have like tons of them all over the place, you know, all over the country. And uh, this is the thing. This is where it all ties together. The drone strikes that Ukrainians make are not gone away either. Again, what's striking is the design, the execution of, of what these military analysts, a lot of them that I have read, have classified as completely different and related operations. You know, I love the fact that it's a single idea. Because there is no separate striking of you know, city of Moscow. There is no separate striking of drones of Sevastopol or, or anything. Where these drones are coming and where everything is happening with these strikes is a single paradigm where Russia has an air defense system they can deploy. And, you know, after the attacks on, on Pskov, on Bryansk, on Moscow, which probably were launched from Russian territory, by the way, they had to figure out that they had to strengthen these air defense systems around these places. Even Margaret Semenyan had one. And on all the other cities with important military facilities, you know, basically had to had to protect them. Although they put some, um, you know, some tires on some planes, uh, hoping that it would protect them. But, you know, tires burn better, better. So, you know, maybe it'll even improve the actual degree of damage, which, you know, drones are going to increase. But in any case, Russia has to make a decision on the relocation of these air defense systems. Because these air defense systems obviously are not infinite, even though they might have many. And uh, I think a lot of things of these air defense systems have been already used. And there's a reason why I think so. First of all, Russian air defense systems have been phased out from the Kuril Islands, which is, of course, next to Japan, and positioned, there, positioned in Moscow or other cities. And, and also from, from fin Finland part. They are not that many of them, because Ukraine's, Ukraine also has been successful at, at destroying them. So this means that there's just not that many of them, because drone strikes will continue and you have to protect everything at once. And that this means that they will probably take the systems needed to protect the Black Sea Fleet away from the front line. And in some, some point out there, which they'll consider more safe. Take the systems away from the front line again, and Ukraine has more advantages to use the same missiles to attack Russian units, Russian military formations, and Russian reserves that uh, Russia actually has at this point. And if you don't take the air defense systems from the front line, it means Russia can more effectively attack in the deep behind Russian lines, in Annex Crimea, in the military facilities that support the supply the whole war effort. So Russia, we're going to have to suffer actual losses somewhere. Ukraine is adapting pretty quickly to all these changes and uh, the manufacturing and everything and intelligence is also important here. Because once again, Ukrainian military intelligence is at this point orders of magnitude ahead of the Russian one. Russian intelligence has no communication systems, no surveillance systems that could even come close to the intelligence that Ukrainians have. <laughs> they even lack satellites, which Ukrainians have access in plenty. And Ukrainians have a lot of agents, obviously in Russian territory, because we see not only drone launches, but also the correction of, of these. And it's not clear who these agents are. It could be Ukrainian sympathizers, it could be saboteurs or whatever, but there's a lot of them. And of course, there are some people who support Russia and this war who are doing the same in Ukraine. But the thing is their usage. Because in, in, in Russia, in Russian intelligence, apparently, according to my reports, has not been using their network of agents efficiently at all. They're not even been doing correcting of artillery strikes. They have just been blown up a thing or two, but nothing like this. So this is the thing. Basically, it's important for Ukraine to defeat 
these Russian targets and, and when, it, when it really matters to them. Ukraine carefully thinks over these operations and scouts air routes in advance by launching drones, distracting Russia on some false targets like striking Moscow, because why would you strike Russian why would you, why would you strike the suburbs or something? And then Russia concentrates on Moscow, and at that moment, <laughs> the Pskov airfield was struck in a very cunning way. But uh, yeah, Russian side does not really know how to <laughs> tell their story and how to deal with all this stuff. Ukraine, see, has survival at its matter, so they take everything very much seriously. Meanwhile, you know, Ukraine, meanwhile, Ukraine, Russia is just, you know, lazily, because of their incompetence, bombing, uh, bombing civilian stuff in a lot of cases, which, you know, is, might look good on paper, might win put in the elections, because, you know, we're killing all the Nazis. However, well, that does not lead to victories. And as usual, and you know that I follow them very much, what does Russia, Russian propaganda say about all the situation? How does this confirm my idea that Ukraine is going to continue these strikes and this is a part of everything bigger? See, usually when this thing happens, we saw that they are saying that the response will be inevitable, that it's going to be scary, and when everything happens, the response is going to be imminent, and all the Vatnik supporters online, they also carry on about this situation, and they write a lot about this. But for some reason, after this strike, I didn't see almost any such posts because, you know, how many times did they threaten to do something after drones and sea drones and everything and missile strikes in Crimea, but in the end, nothing happened. Why? Well, because Russia doesn't have the ability to do that anymore. Russia would very much like to do it, but they just can't. See, this is, it's like... It's not true that Russia hasn't even started this. Russia's using everything. Tanks, airplanes, missiles, Navy strike Ukraine. But they're using it. But their resources are still not infinite. And uh, all the stories about Vladimir Putin and Medvedev, about how they recruited 280,000 volunteers, and how about the fact that they produce 1,600 tanks a year, and about all that stuff, what it means. Missiles and shells and everything, that's everything superb. Yeah, they're refuted by the situation in the front which we follow regularly. Everyone's complaining all the time about lack of uniforms and the weakness of Russian artillery, which is all, you know, dying out and being shot in counter-battery counter of fire. It's like the shell dieters, one of them, Slavkov, calls this whole thing. And, you know, even Solovyov, one of the most craziest propagandists that I hate personally, he usually waves his fist and says that the answer will be imminent and will destroy Ukraine. Yeah, this time he just sighed and said, well, yeah, we could have hit Ukraine, but, you know, let's just shoot Washington, in, Washington instead. He said that uh, this is just the beginning and we must understand that they're all Nazis, the British and the Germans and the Americans, and they're, they're going to give everything to, to Ukraine. And the main task, you know, is just to cause maximum damage to Russian Federation. And that, I quote here, yes, we can respond to Kiev and to Odessa, but we should respond to Berlin, to London, to Washington, D.C., New York, places where, there, where these non-people hang out, where, where, you know, we should hit the administrative buildings where the true decisions are made. He also mentioned that you have to hit Poland based where everything comes from and all this stuff. Now, obviously, none, no one really would have seriously called to strike against Washington or Britain or anything else and bring on the whole of NATO, but it's just a thing that they say and he's really sad about this situation. This is just, he's truly saying that, you know, we don't even need to strike back Kiev. 
you can see very well that there will be you know, no retaliation strikes except, except you know, random drones thrown at Kiev and, and other cities once again, this time at Odessa, and then nothing serious against military, military targets whatsoever. So all these people are just soaping around, being sad. This time there are no screams. This time there are no, no craziness, nothing about everything that's happened with, with this and no red lines this time. None of this. It's because they can't do it and they know that this is going to continue and that this is a problem. Meanwhile, Putin in his economical forum mentions none of this stuff at all and talks about some sort of crazy nonsense. And, uh, well, we'll get to this in the following episode after this. It's just that everything continues on super simply for Russia. They don't seem to fix this. And now the generals are just scrambling to figure out how to bring this into in a good light. No one really expected this, at least not on the Russian side. And Russia has a lot of resources and a lot of capabilities. However, I think this is one of these breaking points in the war where we are seeing that even propagandists of the Kremlin don't really have a proper answer to this. And we have a successful combined arms operation, combined strike from the Ukrainian side, which will probably continue because, you know, I think they've tested enough and they'll test more. And then, then Russia will just move these entire defenses away some more. And, you know, it's either going to be ammo depots that explode soon or even more ships. I'm certain of this. Something's big brew- something big is brewing out there and uh, also confirmed from some of my sources. And it's a bit insane how everything just falls together. This war might just, you know, <laughs> might uh, not last as long as everyone keeps expecting. I keep hoping for this because, again, a lot of depends on this from the Western side about their gun deliveries, missile deliveries. But still, Ukrainians have proven that they are really wise when using these things. So now you know a bit more about the bigger meaning of this Sevastopol strike. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a thing that shows us about what's going to happen in the future. So in this way, it's so much more than uh, all these ships. And again, sorry, I, <laughs> I'm not an expert on naval matters, but I tried my best. But yeah, a lot of other things that I need to talk about. But I just hope that uh, I have explained this whole Sevastopol incident a bit more to you. And yeah, that's going to be it for now. And if you want to support the show or just, you know, help me out with all the preparing for marriage thing, please uh, consider becoming my patron on patreon.com slash eastern border. Or, you know, if you like it better, you can just go to our homepage, the eastern and click the donate button. Lately, we have a lot of spammers there as well, <laughs> dealing with a bunch of mess over there and trying to make sure that I don't go insane while analyzing military data and reading all sorts of <laughs> papers and, and stuff. Uh, next episode is going to be all about these other news that I had to skip to talk about all this Sevastopol incident. But, you know, then there's going to be a discussion with, with Alex. We're back on track and working really hard. I hope if this was a bit tangenty, again, it's because my notes for this were pretty scrambled because of all the naval matters. But, yeah. До свидания, товарищи. And remember, happiness is mandatory.